Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to present some of my thoughts following the, the debate that I had with Jason Mullet of Logical Belief Ministries and hosted by the Council, which I played on the last episode. Sorry for some of the audio difficulties. I didn't have the best connection, uh, so there were some data drops uh, in there. And then towards the end, and, and during the after show, uh, you could tell that the host had left and uh, it kind of fizzled out that way. But overall, I think it was a good uh, discussion leading up to those uh, that very last little bit. In this debate, uh, Jason and I had discussed our views of Genesis 1. Now, if you haven't listened to the debate yet, if you haven't gone back, I would really like to encourage you to pause this episode and go back and listen to the last episode, listen to the full dialogue before moving on to this one. Uh, I want you to hear the entire dialogue so you have a frame of reference. I'm not going to play audio clips here or anything like that. I'm not going to quote Jason directly. So uh, it's really helpful if you have the dialogue as a frame of reference for this episode. Now, in the debate, I defend a polemical literary framework view, and Jason defends the classical literal 24-hour day view of Genesis 1. I've heard some really great feedback on it, but I've also heard some people wonder why I didn't say this or didn't ask that question. And so that's the point of this episode, to say uh, what I didn't have the time or the opportunity to say or ask in the debate. Now, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other content of the podcast, please consider becoming a sponsor of the show. Your gift of any amount is really greatly appreciated. You can sign up to be a sponsor by following the Become a Sponsor link on the blog or by finding us on Patreon. If you're not able to support this podcast financially, please head on over to iTunes, give us a star rating, and leave a review. The better the rating, the higher the Freed Thinker comes up in search results. So it really, really helps us overall. Now, with that, on with the show. So here are some of my thoughts on the dialogue that I had with Jason Mullet on Genesis 1. Um, There are a few categories of responses that I would like to delve into. The first one is that Jason accused me of what he called historical naturalism, whatever that really even means. He didn't quite define, um, but I'm guessing he means something like a liberal view of history from a naturalistic perspective. Uh, we'll delve into that in a little bit here in a little bit. Um, but he he drew this almost entirely from an incidental or a tertiary statement that I had made in my original paper. If you listen, the passage that led him to that 
inference or that conclusion that I was assuming naturalism was a section where I spoke on a potential ethical problem of potentially having a false history. Now, in this section, I was simply mentioning one of the many problems with a literal reading of Genesis, one that many literary framework advocates like myself point to as a justification to look for an alternate view of Genesis 1. That's it. I wasn't making some broad sweeping statement about history or naturalism or science or anything like that. It's just merely that if we read, if we take a literal view of Genesis 1 to begin with, these certain contradictions seem to pan out. And if you listen to some of my previous episodes, you'll remember the one where I actually did some of these critiques of the literary framework, where if you hold to literary framework, some conclusions seem unavoidable. And this was one of them. Now, a couple problems with this. First is that I show that he was just misunderstanding what my point was. Uh, he thought that my point about uh, the craters, right? I, I mentioned that there might be this ethical problem dealing with craters being found all over the face of the earth. Now, he thought that I was referring to the dating of the craters, that I was somehow assuming something like the radiometric dating and an old earth and so on and so forth. So uh, he kind of tipped his hand that he thought old earthers were just historical naturalists, but we can put a pin in that. But notice that he picked up on this one minute objection that really is a tertiary point, and he drew some strange inference about a possible unspoken assumption of historical naturalism, yet he skipped the numerous times where I said explicitly that I'm not an old earth creationist. He thought I was assuming old earth creationism. Then, once I explain that the ethical issue comes from having a marks of a history that could have not happened if the earth were only six to 10,000 year old, because the sheer volume of life-ending craters brought about by these meteors that have hit the earth would basically just still be wreaking havoc on our global climate right now. It'd be, it'd be like Adam having scars from a bear attack that never happened that you'll notice that once I cleared that up, the objection of the assumption of naturalism really fell to the wayside. And that was like his big linchpin objection. But it was just defeated at that point. But for the sake of argument, let's pretend that it didn't fall away. Let's hash this out even a little bit further and to give him the benefit of the doubt and the greatest opportunity. Well, there's a couple problems here. First, my objection is largely based on Genesis 2.5. God himself orders his creation to operate under normal providence. Should we think that a direct miracle is hiding under every normal rock? Well, God himself appealed to a normative providence or normal providence in Genesis 2.5 as a reason for why it did not rain. He said that he had not brought about the plants of the land because it had not rained and there was not man to work the field. Now, this makes sense in the agrarian culture of the ancient Near East and the people who were coming out of Egypt that Moses was addressing. What happens when it rains? What happens in the rainy season? Plants grow. Why, did, why do plants need rain and man? 
Well, because in that area, when you either have rain or you have man-made irrigation, you, have, you need water and irrigation for an agrarian culture. Now, God ha- said he hadn't planted any plants and he hadn't had them grow because it had not yet rained and there was not man to work the land. But he didn't have the garden because there was man that wasn't around to tend and to keep it. Now, the question is, could God have kept everything alive by special providence? Well, of course he could have. He's God. Absolutely, yes, he could have. But did he? No. He tells us he didn't. He tells us that he has ordered creation by this normal providence that what do plants need? Water or man to tend them. That's not historical naturalism to agree with God about his normal providence in creation. So that's one problem. Another problem is that this scalpel cuts deeper towards Jason, actually, than it does towards me. Right? There's a major problem for Jason if he wants to accuse me of, uh, of historical naturalism simply because I accept that God has ordered his creation under normal providence. Now, we can see this problem cutting back to Jason in a couple of ways. The first one is a problem of, and this is going to sound strange, but kidneys and bowels. I know. It sounds strange to talk about kidneys and bowels or intestines at this point, Uh, but you'll stick with me and you'll see why this is important. Uh, In the Old Testament, kidneys or keleoth or nephroi, depending on uh, which which verse you're talking about, um, have an important place in the scriptures, believe it or not. Let me start by reading Psalm 139, verse 13, and I'm going to explain why this is in a moment. Psalm 139, 13 reads, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, kidneys often played a special place in the sacrificial practices of many cultures, and Israel was no different. This is kind of a chicken and egg kind of situation, and to be honest, I'm not sure which one comes first, and I'm not sure how we'd be able to even demonstrate which one comes first. But at some point, the fat around the kidneys was found to be the best for sacrificial burning and consumption, and so the kidneys themselves came to be seen as particularly sacred, or the kidneys were already believed to be sacred, and thus they became to be preferred in the sacrifice. Again, I'm not sure which order, uh, which one led to which. I'm not even sure it matters. Regardless of the order, by the time we arrive at the sacrifices under the Mosaic law, we see the kidneys being given special attention, such as Deuteronomy 32.14 and Leviticus 7.22-25 is just two of many examples. We see it, the kidneys showing up in the peace offerings, in the sin offerings, in the transgression offerings, and so on. Again, not sure of the chicken or the egg order, but whatever the order, the inaccessibility of the kidney within the chest cavity of the human made it an apt organ for the ancients to view the internal being of man as being represented by the kidneys. This is why I led with Psalm 139, 13. 
When David says that God formed his inward parts, we commonly think of that in poetic or spiritual terms, meaning something like the innermost being. In fact, the Net Bible, which by all accounts is a very good translation, by the way, it translates Psalm 139, 13 as saying, quote, Certainly you made my mind and heart. You wove me together in my mother's womb, end quote. And I think that that's honestly the point that David's getting at. That's the, what's called the dynamic equivalent translation of the verses. That God made the deepest aspects of what it means to be human. He didn't mean that he just made the organ buried deepest in the chest cavity. But in ancient Near Eastern uh, culture, and particularly in Israel, the kidneys came to be synonymous with something like the seat of the person. It's where the conscience and the mind resided. They didn't say the brain. They didn't say the mind. They didn't say the heart. They said the kidneys. The old King James Version often translates this as the reins of the person. That is, it's the controlling aspect of the human person. It's, you know, the reins like on a horse. It's what you pull to steer the animal, what you steer the beast. In fact, part of the biblical praise of God is that he knows us so well that he even knows our hearts and our minds, right? Nope. He knows our kidneys. Over and over in the Old Testament where it tells us that God is knowing the heart of a man. Oh, search me, you have known my heart. It's God actually knowing the kidneys, such as Psalm 9, sorry, Psalm 7, 9, Psalm 26, 2, Jeremiah 11, 20, 17, 10, 20, 12, uh, to name just a few. Now, let's look at a couple of examples of how the kidneys are used in the Old Testament where we might normally miss it. And this is by far not an exhaustive list. All right, so Job 19, 25 through 26. This is a common verse that most of you will know. Job 19, 25, 26 reads, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Nope. My kidneys faint within me. Yeah. Lamentations 3, 10 to 13 kind of echoes the cliche of being shot through the heart, but it's, a, it's speaking of God uh, basically tearing asunder Israel and uh, Jerusalem. He says, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as his target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Psalm 16, 7 through 10. I bless the Lord who gives me his counsel. In the night I also, my kidneys, not my heart, my kidneys instruct me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad. Nope. Therefore, my kidneys are glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. Psalm 73, 21 to 22. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in the heart. Nope, I was pricked in the kidneys. 
Jeremiah 12, 1b through 3a says, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their kidneys. Not their heart, their kidneys. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. Nope. You test my kidneys towards you. Proverbs 23, 12. Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. Nope. Apply your kidneys to instruction. Right, that's kidneys. What about bowels? Bowels is the Hebrew word meah. And here, like the kidneys, the bowels came to be viewed as the seat of emotion. It was where people felt things and, and experienced or lived out their convictions. It was a little bit more based on the conviction side, not so much on the mental or uh, mind side. This was the word that is used to describe the womb where children are born or ripped out from, depending on the Bible verse, where the water of bitterness and the trial by ordeal, which makes the bowels sick in Numbers 5, as well as those oh-so-lovely passages where people are cut open in battle and their intestines fall out. It's their mayah, their, their intestines, their bowels that fall to the ground. But let's see a couple of our favorite verses and see what they really say. Genesis 43, verse 30. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brothers, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Well, did you hear bowels in there? Well, no unless you're reading from the KJV. The, the King James actually is a little bit more literal on this. It says uh, that Joseph hurried out for his bowels did yearn for his brothers. It's actually a more accurate translation. It was his bowels that were yearning for his brothers. It wasn't that he was deeply stirred. Psalm 48 for uh, chap Psalm 40 verse 8 <laughs> uh, I desire to do your will my God your law is within my heart no your law is within my bowels my small intestines my digestive tract basically Lamentations 120 see Lord how distressed I am I am in torment within and in my heart I am disturbed for I have been most rebellious no in my bowels I am disturbed. Lamentations 2.11. My eyes fail from weeping. I am torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. No, my bowels are poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed. 1 Kings 3.26, here Solomon is giving the order to cut the baby in half. It's that really famous story where the two mothers are fighting over a baby, uh, they're saying that it's theirs, and, and Solomon says to, to cut the baby in half. Well, 1 Kings 3.26 says, Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, Because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to get death. No, it's because her bowels yearned for her son. Jeremiah 31.20 says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? 
Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Nope. Therefore, my bowels yearn for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. In fact, even in the New Testament, we see this. In Philippians 1.8, Paul writes, For God is my witness, how I yearned for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Well, where was bowels or heart in there? Well, again, actually, the, the King James translates this a little bit better for us. Uh, it says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. This reflects the same ideas in the Old Testament. Imagine telling your wife or your husband that you love them with all the affections of your intestines. It's a weird picture. But Paul is showing the ancient Israelite understanding of where our affections come from. Clearly, the guts. And we could go on and on with these passages. Okay, so what's the point here? What's the point for the debate? Why does it matter for my dialogue with Jason? See, for Jason, anyone who updates their interpretation of the Bible to bring it into line with what we understand from quote-unquote secular science, whatever that means, is working on the assumption of naturalism. Now, not only did I point out that Jason is not a geocentrist, he doesn't affirm a solid dome firmament over the earth, and he doesn't hold to a two-tier cosmology of Israelite cosmology, and he doesn't believe that the earth is a flat disk, all in line with the cosmological furniture of the scriptures. But here we can see that the Bible tells us explicitly about the basic constitution of man. We think we have a conscience with we think and we have a conscience with our kidneys and we have convictions and act in accordance with the law within our small intestines and our guts now would jason say that he is doing anything wrong or quote unquote naturalistic by updating our understanding of those certain aspects of human anatomy by affirming a modern anatomical understanding of human physiology I doubt it. Would he take what would have been a clear statement of the ancient Near Eastern author and readers and make it symbolic just to escape the issue and thus reject the authorial intent? Would he say that he is rejecting the scriptures because he does not believe God wrote his law on our intestinal tracts and that he thinks with his kidneys? Of course not. But if not, then why does he accuse those of us who read Genesis 1 as an expression of ancient Near Eastern cosmology and thus read it that way? As, and, and why does Jason then accuse us of rejecting the scriptures and working on naturalistic assumptions? It's entirely selective, and I think it's very inconsistent on his part and exempts him from this problem. Or at least he thinks it would exempt him. But I think it's just inconsistent. Now, another problem with Jason calling those of us who disagree with him, you know, historical naturalists. You'll notice if you listen to Jason's podcast, 
uh, on Genesis 1. He spends about four episodes going over the scientific evidence for why he thinks we can observe the age of the earth to be young in accordance with Genesis 1. Now, there are three problems with Jason's presentation here. First, when pressed on it, if he could be convinced that Genesis did not teach a literal day view, he actually said that he would have no warrant for believing that the earth is young. Now, this seems bizarre, for surely if the overwhelming majority of the scientific evidence demonstrated that the earth was young, then wouldn't he be justified in believing that the earth was young based on that evidence? I mean, isn't that why young earth creationists debate with evolutionists and try to present evidence for young earth creationism because they think the evidence shows that the earth is young? Now, if he was convinced that my view was correct and that Genesis 1 did not teach the age of the earth, he basically just admitted that the evidence he has scientifically actually isn't good evidence unless someone is so utterly biased by their other beliefs about Genesis 1 to believe it as such, which is strange. So on his view, why would we even present this to atheists, for example? If the only justification for believing that the earth is young is holding to a young earth reading of Genesis 1, to a literal 24-day view, and if the scientific evidence itself is not warrant or not evidence or not strong enough, or not justification to believe that the earth is young, then why present it to atheists? They, what's the point? If the evidence is only evidence for people who already hold to a young earth creationist view, and if it's not justification on its own, it's not evidence enough on its own for a belief in a young earth, then what's the point of presenting it to anyone who disagrees with you? It's just purely for within the echo chamber. Now, that's a problem. Okay, ignoring that first objection for now, and assuming we could have evidence that the earth is young, Jason also argued against a view known as uniformitarianism. That is, that God set up creation to operate under the same laws and principles at the beginning that we observe around us now. Now, if that's the case, then to be honest, we've given up rationality. Because we could come up with any, and I mean any, ad hoc explanation of anything we say about the past, and when pressed, we could just fall back on that, well, things were different back then, and we can't expect to understand it on our natural laws today and what we observe today, and of course, we're not going to have evidence from observing the universe today for what it was like back then, and on and on and on. It just completely destroys our ability to reason about the past. And I find that the only people who want to def deny uniformitarianism are people that really don't have much evidence for the view to begin with, which again is kind of telling considering point one. Maybe Jason, again, I don't want to impute motives or anything, but if he says the evidence alone is enough to warrant, and if he's going to deny uniformitarianism so that the evidence that we observe around us today from science may not match what actually happened in the early universe, it seems that his evidentiary case just would fall by the wayside anyways. But 
let's just ignore number one and number two for now. And in saying that, surely Jason is is actually the one trying to present scientific reasoning from the text, isn't he? Isn't he the one arguing that we observe genetics and speciation and natural law and the hydronic cycles of the early earth and so on and so forth from within the text itself? So if I'm the one that's accused of quote-unquote naturalism simply for agreeing with God that plants need water, then Jason and the other young earth creationists are like naturalists on steroids, hopped up on amp and drinking, you know, a 24 pack of Red Bull when they try to draw a direct line between everything said in Genesis 1 and naturalistic history, according to what they observe in science. Now, notice I'm not the one that's saying that that the text is about a scientific presentation of the early earth. I'm actually the one saying, uh, guys, the text is from a pre-scientific culture dealing with a functional ontology. It's not about a scientific presentation of the early earth. It's Jason and the young earth creationists who are the ones that are saying, um, yes, it is. So how can I be the one that's guilty of naturalism if they're the one that's actually appealing to science and nature and even though they deny uniformity, uniformity and, and so on and so forth? How am I the one guilty of naturalism and they're not? Okay, that's my response to his uh, accusation of historical naturalism. The next ones will be much more brief in comparison. First, I think we observed a problem of his hermeneutical inconsistency. You'll see this when I, when I started pushing him on the days of Genesis 1 and what was accomplished. If you remember, I pushed him specifically on days 1 and day 4, and I asked him, what was the difference between light and dark on day 1 being created and separated and light and dark being created and separated on day 4? If light was already created by the separation of light and dark on day one, then why did God need to re-separate the light from the darkness on day four? Remember, these are definite article, the light, the darkness. These are specific things. They're not just lightness and darkness in general. And for, and for Jason, he had to basically come up and say, well, they, they're, they're these two different things. Except he couldn't really say what the distinction is. They, they seem to be a distinction without a difference. And the difference, and in saying they're different, it was just kind of an ad hoc way to escape the problem. But you'll notice he had to take one literal and one less than literal. So he couldn't really hold his hermeneutical assumptions consistently. It, it also, by the way, didn't explain why God needed to separate the light from darkness twice, even if the light from the darkness could be shown to be conceptually different. So that's a problem. He also has to read Genesis 2 in a less than literal way, right? In order to align Genesis 2 with his literalism of Genesis 1, he's going to need to say that the plants of Genesis 2 are somehow different plants than those plants in Genesis 1, although without really any textual support whatsoever. It'd be like saying the man in Genesis 2 is different than the man in Genesis 1, or that this account in Genesis 2 isn't chronological um, since it's opposite of the order in Genesis 1. But in that case, why is Genesis 1 the one that's in order and not Genesis 2? It, it, just, it just gets very problematic and very inconsistent very quickly once you start scratching the surface. So Jason 
and, and, and the literal day proponents simply can't hold to their own proposed hermeneutic consistently when applied to all of what the text says, and they have to seem to propose these ad hoc solutions to escape the problems and contradictions that arise when we read the text as a modern scientific literal cosmology. Right? So much of my arguments against it are an internal critique. Let's assume the literal scientific, you know, chronological meaning of the text and see what comes of it. And what comes of it is just all kinds of problems. Now, another thing we can point to in the whole question of historicity, right? Because he's going to want to say that, you know, I'm denying the historicity of the text. And I gave a couple of, of examples. You know, I asked about the, the Gospels and why is it, you know, we can say that the Gospels are written synchronically. That is, they're not written in chronological order. But no one accuses you of sacrificing that they're historical events if you say that they're not written in chronological order. They're written in theological uh, and, and thematic order. Right? No one says, oh, you're denying history, you're denying inerrancy, you're denying perspicuity by saying that we have to piece together the order of the gospel. You know, the gospel of Luke, for example. So another comparison can actually be drawn to the book of Revelation. Now, let me just briefly say that this, uh, this works regardless of your view of Revelation. However, Jason is an amillennialist, like I am, and typically in reform circles, we hold to uh, what are called um, uh, cyclical or iterist views of Revelation. That is, that Revelation does not form a straight chronological line. Whether or not you hold to its future or not, it's not a straight chronological line. You see reiterations and recapitulations and the same, the same stories being told multiple times, sometimes three times, sometimes seven times. Uh, they're told different times from different angles to bring out different aspects of the events, right? Revelation is highly polemical. It's highly literary. It's very poetic, very symbolic. There's high amounts of repetition. But for most of us, we're going to say it's historical. If you're a partial preterist, you're going to say it's historical, and most of it was fulfilled by the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But regardless of that view, if you're a futurist, you're going to say it describes real history of the future. If you're an idealist or some other version, you're going to say that it represents real historical events happening throughout history. Right? You're going to hold to the historicity that Revelation is pointing to, even if you disagree that it is presented in, say, a strictly uh, literal historical narrative. But no one's going to accuse you of denying the history of redemption, uh, you know, the, hist the historicity of redemptive history by basically saying that Revelation is recapitulatory, for example, right? I mean, ask yourself, how many times do all the mountains of the world melt away? <laughs> it's over and over and over again in the book. Right? But, but we don't have that same type of objection. For some reason, that objection only comes up with the kind of the sacred cow of Genesis 1. Only when it comes to Genesis 1, when we say, well, we just don't think the genre is a literal uh, chronological narrative, 
do people start getting up in arms and saying you're denying history and inerrancy and perspicuity and all that. But they have no problem with you saying that about the creation accounts in Psalm 19, in Job 37 and 38. Uh, they have no problem with you saying that if you hold an iterist, uh, you know, amillennial view of Revelation, if you hold to a, a synchronic view of any of the Gospels, right? I'm just asking for consistency in our approach. Another problem we have is, and, and I didn't really bring this up in any of my past episodes, and I didn't really bring this up in the debate either, but there is um, the statement of morning and evening. Um, and I want to go into depth on this a little bit. Well, I, I shouldn't say in depth. I want to make a, a, a comment on it that I haven't quite uh, hashed out before on any of the episodes or in the debate. And this is going to transition into the day seven problem. And that is evening and morning actually refer to not a full day, but to daily periods of rest. If I were to come to you and I were to tell you that I slept from evening until morning, are you going to look at me and be like, oh, you're such a sloth. How did you sleep an entire day? No, you're going to think I got a good night's sleep, but I got up in the morning and I went to work right? That's important. That's an important feature because in, if you look through this, the seven days, what you have is you have God working and then there was evening and there was morning the second day, for example. So God works and then there's an evening rest, evening and morning. And then he works and then he rests and there's an evening and there's a morning. Right? The evening and the morning is not summary of the entire 24-hour day. It is a, is a daily rest period. Right? The, the rest that permeates day seven and the Sabbath and Sabbath laws is actually far more pervasive than people recognize in Genesis 1. The rest motif functions throughout every single one of the days. So what happens when we get to day seven? Well, a lot of people have noticed that day seven doesn't have morning and evening. Well, why is that? Because God doesn't work on day seven. The entire day actually is a day of rest. So you don't have morning and evening, or sorry, evening and morning, the seventh day, because God has entered his final rest on day seven. There's no work happening on day seven. He doesn't need a daily intermediate rest. He has now entered into the fullness of his rest where he rests from his creative activities, right? So these, these are clearly analogical days that the author has in view, right? The, these are days where, where, God, where God is setting up an analogy and he's showing that you have periods of work followed by daily rest, followed by, a, a, you know, you have six of those and then you have a seventh period of complete rest. These are analogical days. God doesn't actually need to rest. God's time is not like our time, right? Another problem that you have is we mentioned that, that uh, yom plus an ordinal doesn't always mean a t literal 24-hour day. And I don't know why, honestly, this struck me in listening back to the dialogue. I don't know why I've never made this connection before. Uh, we know that the seventh day is not a literal 24-hour day. Most young earth creationists and, and literal day uh, view, uh, proponents agree with us. The seventh day 
is not a literal 24-hour solar day. But notice what I just called it, the seventh day. We have an example. <laughs> you know, we don't need to go to the examples that, that I gave, such as, you know, Zechariah and Deuteronomy and Hosea, where we, where we see yom plus an ordinal or cardinal number, meaning something other than a 24-hour day. We have one in Genesis 1 itself, the seventh day day. We have yom plus an ordinal that doesn't mean a 24-hour day, and we all agree that it doesn't mean a literal 24-hour day, right? So we have no morning and no evening precisely because God is, uh, is now enter into his entire rest. These were analogical days. And so this, is an an- this, this helps us understand what I was getting at when, we, when he compares it and when he, he brings up Exodus 20 where Moses basically uses the days of creation as a paradigm for the work week. Well, if these are analogical days, then the paradigm is analogical, right? You, you, you can't say that the, the, the paradigm is a literal one-to-one mapping of the work week. We already have to make an exception for day seven, but now if we understand what the evening and the morning aspect was, uh, and we understand the analogical nature of these days, it's very hard to say that there's a one-to-one mapping of the literal uh, of a literal six and seven days of creation to the the the, the Sabbath rest laws uh, throughout the Mosaic law, especially since that sevenfold paradigm is just what's used for Sabbath years and for Sabbath of Sabbath years or Jubilee years, right? The, the sevenfold paradigm is clearly what's in view, and we can see a little bit more evidence of that that we just proposed. Finally, my last really response here, uh, I'll try to keep this brief because it's somewhat complex. Um, this is going to be based on his use or rather abuse of presuppositionalism to defend his case. I'm going to keep this very brief because for those people who aren't interested in presuppositionalism or don't know anything about presuppositionalism, it would be an entire different episode to go into presuppositionalism. So I'm going to keep this kind of vague, but those who are familiar enough should be able to track with what I'm saying. Now, you'll notice that Jason tries to make his own literal day view something that has presuppositional necessity. That is, that it's an a priori aspect of our worldview, such that to reject his reading of Genesis 1 just is to reject the Scripture and the Scripture's God. Now, this is massively problematic for two reasons. There's more reasons than that, but there's two reasons that I'm going to lay out here. First, we cannot, and I mean cannot, confuse our interpretation of a passage with the inspired and authoritative word of God itself. To do this makes our interpretations presuppositional necessities, which they are most absolutely not. This also makes it impossible to falsify our positions, which is extremely dangerous for the Christian to hold to. It's extremely dangerous to hold that whatever our interpretation of a passage is, it cannot be falsified, especially on issues where good and godly Christians have disagreed for about as long as the texts have been around. Right? That is a massive 
problem because then you're actually going to start getting into issues of you're not a true Christian unless you agree with me on this really tertiary issue. The second problem is that I really, really doubt that Jason would allow this with other interpretive issues. Would he allow me as a Presbyterian, for example, to use the same argument for the presuppositional necessity of infant baptism, for example? I doubt it. I doubt he would let me say that if you disagree with me on infant baptism, you are rejecting the scriptures and you are rejecting the scriptures God and you are assuming naturalism or something like that. Right? What about something as trivial as what the Nephilim are, if they're quasi-demonic half-breed demigods? What if, what if someone wanted to make that interpretation a presuppositional necessity? Right? That'd be problematic. We would never allow that kind of abuse of presuppositionalism from others on issues that we disagree with. In fact, imagine that I said the literary framework view of Genesis 1 was the inspired meaning of the passage in such a way that it had presuppositional necessity, and to deny it was to deny the scriptures. Now, Jason would obviously just say, um, Tyler, no. I disagree with your reading of the text, and you cannot make your view a presuppositional necessity. And I agree. I can't. But he really ought not as well. He would be right. That scalpel cuts both ways, though, Jason. Jason really should stop trying to basically beg the question by sneaking a literal day view under the guise of presuppositional necessity such that to reject his interpretation of Genesis 1 uh, is just to reject the scriptures. That's a massive, massive problem. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or come on by the Freed Thinker podcast page on Facebook. Join us next time as we continue to help free thinkers to be freed indeed. Good night and God bless. They are a small grassroots team of apologetic speakers, each of whom has their own small grassroots ministry. Then one day they had an idea. It started almost as a joke, but quickly bloomed into a full-fledged ministry plan. Gathered together as bloggers, podcasters, vloggers, and writers, each with their own small voice, but drowned out and passed over by the grandeur of celebrity apologists. From the eastern seaboard to the west coast, and various locations in between, they come from different backgrounds, but they share one great message. This journey of these thinkers, each with his own small influence in some small corner of the Christian apologetics world, will finally converge in one location. They will meet one another for the very first time. This is a team of speakers like no other. Among them is a man who has struggled against seizures and brain surgery, and yet has remained brilliant in his defense of the gospel. A former atheist whose conversion to Christianity now has him battling the worldview he once held. A former gospel rapper whose ministry on behalf of urban believers fights for racial reconciliation. An elementary school teacher who strives to make apologetics accessible to the everyman. And finally, a man with Asperger's syndrome married to a woman with Asperger's
Asperger's Syndrome. His passion, along with apologetics, is to keep the church informed on matters of how to minister to the autistic brothers and sisters in their midst, and of the treasure that his unconventional marriage has been to In May of 2018, the group, now known as The Mentionables, will hold its very first national conference in Greensboro, North Carolina. This unusual group, The Mentionables, which came together almost by accident, now invite you to join them. Come see their messages united. Come see what small voices can do to present one loud noise for the kingdom. Join us for Mentionable, the conference, 2018. For more information, visit the Mentionable's Facebook group page or contact Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. Mentionable, the conference. Many small voices present one big message.